Hello. Hello. Right. Different one. We're indoors. We're indoors and we just finished an episode. Confusingly. We're doing the intro at the end. Yeah. This is like proper professional podcasting. Professional as shit, mate. I what, am. The earliest I've ever sworn. What's that? 15 <laughs> seconds in and I've sworn. <laughs> Enjoy! <laughs> yeah, you also swore in a very comedy place in this, in this podcast, so look out for oh, that, please. Yeah. So it was, we, it was we an would... enjoyable moment. <laughs> Are just... you thinking about the same one I am? Yes, I am. Okay. But wait, this is episode 50 of the Forest School podcast. Oh, yeah. And, um, you, you know, I'm sorry to disappoint you listeners because we were going to do a whole podcast about earthworms. Yeah. But instead... We're very excited about it. As like episode 50. But instead, we've only got, I'm afraid, uh, Tristan Gooley, the natural navigator, which is going to be a massive disappointment to those of you who are really looking forward to hearing about earthworms. I am, of course, joking. It's incredible got Tristan Gooley on the podcast. You've been sat down for a really for long time. an hour and a half. Oh my God. Yeah. We, yeah. we, we waffled. He waffled. It was oh, we're just going to talk fest. for ages. It was incredible. If you don't know his books, please go and get his books. Listen to this podcast and then go and get the books because, as I said in the podcast, they're so information dense that if you think, oh, I've heard most of what this guy's got to say then about that, because he just drops it in yeah. through conversation. And so you, you know, Feel free to keep rewinding it back and go, whoa, he just said a thing about yeah. this. Like, do it. The bit about the how, about nature being a oh. house and looking through the windows, my mind is still blown by that. So We've got to go look and out sit for and that think. bit. Look out for Lewis's comedy swear. And um, Yeah, see, that's a sign that I can't, that I'm not in control, that we had a professional author on that we both quite highly respect. And it was early in that as well. I feel like it was like a couple think- of minutes in. <laughs> I just was like, I'm setting the tone now. <laughs> just say no, I'm going to swear. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> no, it was. I think it was about 20 minutes in. Was it was. Um, okay. So it wasn't straight away. He might have hung up if it had been straight, <laughs> straight, straight away. Straight away. Um, yeah. So I hope that you enjoy. That's enough of the a delicious ramble. waffles. Enjoy. Bye. If you like this podcast and want to support more episodes, you can donate through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash children of the forest to show your support for the Forest School podcast. No well, worries. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. It's um, it's brilliant to speak to you because we um, came to see you in Taunton in the bookshop when you were talking about your latest book, Wild Signs and Star Paths. Oh, okay. And um, and we just really really enjoyed it. There was a couple of um, forest school people there as well. We bumped into a, a fellow forest schooler while we were there. Um, and I know you've spoken at the um, Forest School Association conference as well. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. That was fun. So I'm sure that your work will be uh, known by a lot of people who listen to this podcast, um, but perhaps perhaps not. Perhaps some people are listening to this and um, and don't know um, your work. Um, so you've obviously written quite a lot of books about uh, natural navigation and nature connection. Um, how, how would you describe yourself? Would you describe yourself as an outdoorsman who happens to write books or as an author? Or um, I started, it was all... You know, I started doing what I do uh, just to keep myself entertained. I just it started in a very sort of crude way with with putting journeys together, and the journeys um, became a bit more ambitious. And then I I found that um, I, I came to natural navigation because the irony was that with conventional navigation using instruments, the bigger the journeys, the bigger the kit, the less interesting it is. And so that 
that tipped me back from sort of thousand mile expeditions back towards sort of literally two miles across the English countryside and sometimes a lot less than that, just mm-hmm. using nature's clues. And so that I, I pursued that entirely for my own interest and curiosity and fun. And right, then right. and then I um I just I, I noticed that people were more curious when I was talking about it than I expected them to be. I think I think we've all had that experience where you have a you have a pet passion and you you accept that the world is not necessarily going to share it, yeah. But, but sometimes, sometimes you can't help talking about it, and 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 I think again we've all had that experience where you see people glaze over, and that's that time when people lean in and go, "Tell me more." And and I found that people were. I can remember one time in particular, lying on a beach in Turkey on holiday with friends, and they were good enough friends that they'll tell me to shut up without any encouragement. And, <laughs> and I, was, I was just talking them through all the different constellations and how they can be used to, to, to find north and do other things and 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 in, I was waiting for them to go oh mate will you just give it a break <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't they, and one hour later we were still chatting about it and that I suddenly realized that maybe I'm not the only person in the world who, who finds this stuff interesting and then in 2008 I uh was it 2000 anyway um I started um teaching it more formally and and it was it was odd I was expecting to push that old sort of um, analogy of kind of pushing a boulder up the hill, and I was expecting it to be a very big boulder and a very steep hill, and and I gave it a big shove, and it just started rolling. People just, you know, were, were interested, and I was amazed because I really didn't expect anybody to have any interest in it at all. So that that led to the school, and by school I mean really me, me or my Todd going around teaching anybody who was happy to be taught, and then that led to the books, but the books are now a very big part of what I do because I love the books because they... They allow me to simultaneously teach and learn. So I can take things that I know and share them through writing. But through that process, I will then explore and discover new things as well. So, so I, I really love that. Yeah. I was going to ask you, actually, in this latest book, um, it seems like you've done a load of reading um, about uh, neuropsychology and um, brain science generally um, for, in preparation for this book. Is that right? Yes. I, um, I read a, a book by the the Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, who's, who's often described as an economist, but I think that's just because money is so powerful that if, if what you do could be described as helping economics, you can earn <laughs> more through it or whatever. I don't know, but, yeah. but the, the long and the short of it was that his, his book uh, was the, the fruit of a lot of uh, pioneering academic research that he did with, a, with a, um, an academic partner. And, and the, the amazing concept... Uh, within it just happened to chime with some of my experience in the outdoors and and that that chiming was really that um I was I was starting to sense things outdoors and then not always understanding why other people weren't sensing it but also struggling sometimes because it felt too automatic and intuitive to to understand what why I was sensing it and they weren't and so I was having to unpack it and the and the what it turns out is that the thinking fast is intuitive thinking when our senses and our brain work together to, to tell us something without us having to quite literally put two and two together. So yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that's not a bad example. If you put four objects on a table in front of uh, anyone, a child or, or, or adult, and say how many, they won't have to count. But if you put 24 on the table, they will. One is one is very fast thinking and the other is, is slow. It's, and that, that applies to the outdoors experience in the sense that um, 
if you point out a bird alarm call to somebody who's who's perhaps never they will have heard it thousands of times but they might never have focused their attention on it they will then hopefully go ah oh, i recognize that sound but that that's sort of that's quite slow thinking but but with a bit of practice there comes a point where all outdoors people sense something in the environment because of the alarm of the of the birds nearby and it, it's it was it was that shift that, that the book was about well we we have that quite often it's, yeah. it's it's noticeable to us being you know we're we're two leaders who are outside um you know in our in one woodland so the same woodland five days a week um but we have lots of different groups visit and i i quite often feel um like i'm being a bit rude because parents who have come who it might be their second or third visit look at me very weird when mid-sentence i have to stop and look at something because and a bird has made a noise or a, a branch has creaked in a way and that stuff that is almost like it's a sound they didn't hear but it's it's like you're saying it's that you know that um fast and slow thing of your brain's always scanning isn't it it's mm -hmm. like are you, oh you've got a yeah um i can't remember now if it was in the book or when you when we uh, came to see you speak and you're saying about listening for your name um being said at a dinner party um yeah the cocktail party effect i think yes. they, they, that yeah. i think they call that and it's yeah yeah that's that's a that's a lovely example because everybody's had that um that, as you say your brain is is busy and the the fact that I cite, I can't remember where I came across it, but that our brain is dealing with 11 million bits of information per second. So to stop it going into meltdown, it has to have been, you know, more than 10 million of them pretty quickly. Mm. Mm. Yeah, in your, in your book you say um, that our brains are busy, busy noticing things we think we miss, which I think is a really nice way of saying, uh, and you, you're sort of... Um, reassuring readers of the book that we are actually doing a lot of this stuff already it's just that it's you're not conscious of it that and we can move the the awareness into our uh, i don't know yeah the other the other system it's so a, that you it's can that unconscious consciousness yeah. and the conscious you know what you know that um analogy yeah consciously yeah. incompetent and all those things exactly yes and there, there are lots of lots of metaphors that people are are familiar with and some of them are so familiar they become cliches like learning to ride a bike and and I think that's an interesting one because I my kids are now um, 16 and 13 and they've been riding bikes for years but when I was when I was sort of helping them to learn in the very early stages I had to remember things that I'd completely forgotten but which I've been doing like if you're not a hundred percent steady on a bike yet the difference between a tiny bit of uphill and a tiny bit of downhill is huge. As yeah, you can see. yeah. And, and that, that is something that, you know, if we, if we jumped on a, a bike, we didn't know or something like that, we, we, you know, we'd, we'd try and get to feel, we probably, we probably sort of aim downhill, but, but you wouldn't even necessarily know that you were doing it. You'd, um, yeah. So there are so many, so many examples like that. And in the outdoors, this is, I mean, it's the, there's a sort of, for me, beautiful irony about, about, this book which is that by using modern examples and a lot of contemporary ac academic research we're actually going backwards to what the brain was originally yeah. um, I'm getting close to using non-Darwinian language here but it's I, I find actually in terms of understanding these things evolution is sometimes quite hard for us to to, to visualize so um, you know our brain wasn't designed but sometimes it feels like that um yeah. but our brain has evolved to tell us that there's danger out there because uh we can sense it in the the change of the sound of the wind or the birds or the or the animal uh, other animal noises well it's a bit it's a bit trial and error isn't it and the brains that were errored got eaten 
Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's that thing. Yeah. I was reading, um, uh, uh, oh no, I was listening to uh, some people talking about um, boys, uh, young boys particularly, fascination with things like dinosaurs, but also with um, like big machinery, diggers, rubbish mm-hmm. trucks, things like that. And they were suggesting that that is the part of our brain that when children, like young boys of that age, needed to look out for megafauna. They needed to look out for tigers, rhinos, lions. But if you don't have that, what is the closest thing? It's the bin lorry. It's this enormous <laughs> thing that comes around. That's interesting. And, you, and dinosaurs are that same thing of like, your brain is sort of programmed at that age to go, you should pay attention to the movements of this machine because it's big and it's in your world and that it's kind of our brains have misappropriated. And, and just yeah. gone, that's it, you know, go for that. Yes, I, I do find that I think there is still a lot of mystery in that area because I think the, um, I don't know whether we call them behavioural scientists or evolutionary experts or, or, or whoever they are who are specialising in this area, I think it's quite easy to explain, you know, things things in, at that sort of level. But how we end up with the right number of different software engineers, for example, and things like that. Of course, the market plays a part. If you if you pay if you put a higher salary on something, you're going to attract more people. But I still I still don't fully grasp how we went from needing maybe half a dozen to a dozen basic skills to make society work. You know, twenty thousand years ago, to mm. you know twenty thousand different trades. And and something I hear at, at schools quite regularly now is that. Um, the kids who are at school now, 70% of the jobs that they will do have not been invented yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and quite how our brain has gone from, you know, just being able to spot the difference between a, a fungi that will uh, do as good and kill us and, and uh, sharpening perhaps a, a hunting weapon and, and one or two social skills to, and a bit of cooking and, and that sort of thing to, to all these different things. I still don't understand. There is a there is quite a quite a cute mystery in there somewhere. I think. Oh, but it's all, I think I'm so I'm completely fascinated by this. I think there's a massive crossover between like um, all of this kind of brain science stuff and forest school and the outdoors generally, and that whole like uh, neuroplasticity thing um, about being able to you know the more you give your attention to something, the more it will actually physically change your brain, um, and that being quite a big kind of argument for the benefit benefits of forest school and the outdoors for young people and adults um in terms of kind of go in one way going back as you kind of put it that's how how we were designed to function in the outdoors and all this kind of stuff um but also about uh learning what you might call the soft skills of being able to learn and being able to observe and adapt and all those kind of things which make you a successful human when you're grown up rather than now we're all going to practice you know this particular Road skill. learning of yeah. the alphabet um, yeah. you know and so if you've got the freedom to be able to um, you know play and explore and adapt um, you know both adapt to your landscape but also change your landscape and have mastery over it through play outdoors um, and spotting patterns and all this kind of stuff that um, that you, you write about and, and uh, teach about um, that's how you begin to become an adult that can suddenly learn okay yeah this job is redundant now it doesn't exist I'm now going to adapt and and change to this so I think a lot of forest school people are uh, into forest school for that reason not just about the kind of nature connection but the freedom for children to um yeah use nature as a as a playground and a a brain building space I I, yeah I I wholeheartedly agree and I had to uh, I remember the moment distinctly when I um, 
I mean, one of the things that I've learned as a parent and, and all parents learn uh, sooner or later is that you have to find a lot of synonyms for the word walk. If you threaten, yeah. <laughs> threaten kids with a walk, and it, you know, you're off to a hard sell already. But uh, you, you, I'm preaching to converted there, obviously. But I, I um, but yeah. So, so we were going on a mission or whatever it was, and, and in my mind, it was it was to the top of a, a fairly modest hill uh, in in our local woods, and I knew I had to be back for something. I can't remember what it was. But I'd already sort of given that kind of time limit. Well, well, it'll only take us about three quarters of an hour to get to the top of the hill, three quarters of an hour to, you know, do this, and then you know, half an hour to get home, and all that sort of stuff. And and one of my boys, you know, came off the path and got very excited by one of those quite dramatic um, uh, sort of storm felled trees with the with the, the sort of root ball and everything. And it was it was a sort of halfway between a sort of ready made camp and a rather sort of monstrous looking uh, sculpture in the ground, and. And I instantly, my was like, oh, we haven't really got time. And I had to pull myself up, and I remember it so well that, yeah, it's, you know, what, what honestly is the point of taking the kids outdoors and then sort of, you know, marching them past something that's really grabbing their, their attention. So I, you know, soon after that, I, um, you know, we do still occasionally try and get from A to B, but by and large, um, I'm, I'm happy to forsake B if, if what's between A and B is more interesting to them. Yeah, well, and I think that, and it, this is we've talked before about this is one of the things that keeps us going in forest school is quite often the, the children will you know take that example of the tree that's fallen down and the kids want to go and explore that rather than the thing you were walking to. But when you get there, you realise that you, the adult, go, I'd never noticed that before, yeah. or that's a completely different thing for me, and and kind of being open to. I don't, want to say, I don't want to say being open to learning because that sounds like a wanky poster, but um, but you know being open to going. Oh, I'm interested in all of this. And, well, children know. are, and that kind of goes back to the point you were saying earlier about like um, being worried that you're going to bore your friends about the constellations. That um, I definitely uh, get that feeling that I'll bore someone to tears about would like or whatever or be just really excited about oh my gosh look at this and kids are there with you in general because they are also super excited by something they found in the mud whereas your average adult has kind of gone oh oh right okay or they're not just they're not really seeing it or they've shut it or they've named it and therefore sort of killed sort of closed the book on it i always find that it, you know you get the adults that go Woodlice. Oh, I know about woodlice, and they shut the book intellectually and go. There is no more to know about woodlice. I have named them, and I know where they live. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I, rather... Sorry. Go. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, in a uh, hopefully a gentle, kind, and considerate way, I've been on that war path with almost all my writing, in the sense that, um, so as a writer, I I have a constant so what, as in I I try to never state anything factual as as the end of a end of a piece of writing so um if um and it, it to, to give you a, a, a this this sort of thing as a, as a sort of arc when it actually sort of works quite well i i you know we can use there are more than 20 different ways we can find direction um using um shapes and colors with within trees so um instead of sort of saying you know this tree's branches are shaped like this and this trees if you whether it's to to kids or adults if, if you say you know, these, all the branches are growing towards the light, but the light is different on each side of the tree. So what? Well, we can now use that to find the place we're going to. Okay, but why? And and this this type of thinking is quite, for, for certain people, and, and it's a lot more than I would have feared 15 years ago, this this type of thinking is sort of, it, it, it's, it's self, um, 
uh, nurturing and um, to the point where I mean I had a lovely moment the other day where I'd gone for a bit of a roam in the local woods and and I just I didn't have a destination I was trying to get myself half lost which in my local woods is still just about possible and I was having a lot of fun and then I, I spotted these sort of um uh, I don't know the the formal name for them, but the the, the fungi that are the puff and and sort of push spores up into the air when that when a raindrop lands on them, and and I was loving this, and I took a couple of photos, and then when I got home, um, one of one of my boys had come home, and and I showed him a, um, a, a short bit of video of it whilst we were whilst we were having tea, and uh, he'd he joined the dots that I'd failed to join, but using the logic that I'd been kind of sharing with him over over a few years and so i showed him the, the thing and he goes oh so so you only find those in wet places <laughs> oh, wow. he hadn't even been on the walk with me um, which you know he'd got back from school whilst i was on it otherwise i'd have probably have somehow got him out there but but he he was using that so instead of you know i'd fallen into my own trap in a sense i was sort of going like you know, this this is quite quite nice. I was just touching the the top of the fungus with a small stick, and the spores were sort of flying out. Mm. And to me, there was a visual spectacle there. But I'd fallen into my own trap of not following it through with the so what? What what what, what is that telling us? You know, what is the clue or the sign in my in my sort of writing language? And it was my son who, uh, poor chap, has been so brainwashed. He goes, so you only find those in wet places. I just loved it. It was um, it was yeah. yeah. I, I digress. <laughs> yeah. No, that's amazing. That's I mean, that is it, isn't it? Is joining the dots and. And that's such a good um, way of thinking of it, is the, the, the so what. And Because one of the things that I was wondering when I was reading your books is, we, you know, we, we talk quite a lot um, in the books and, and in general, sort of outdoor leaders talk about, oh, these skills are running, you know, they're dying out, or these skills that used to be, or in some parts of the world are still vital, but are, um, you know, uh, let's say becoming rarer and rarer. And I, I was wondering, when you write the books, when you, you know, do you, because the books are chocked full of information and they're, I was just saying to Gemma before, not that they're a fast-paced read, but they're very information-dense, which is amazing. And I kind of wondered, when you're writing it, do you do you have things that you go, oh, everybody must know that, and you throw it out, and, and some stuff that you sort of give to the editors or the, um, the publishers or whatever it is, and they go, well, nobody knows about that thing, you know, um, how do you pitch yeah. your level of what what goes in a book and what's you know? It's a really really interesting um, uh, question because I I've I've sort of I wrestle with that in a fun way daily and uh, I've I've like all writers I've got it right and and got it wrong at times but the in the in the early days there was I mean it's quite fun for me now but I can remember publishers with a lot of experience before my first book The Natural Navigator sort of looking at the proposal going, you know, they, they're a bit more polite than this, but they're saying, you know, nobody in their right mind is going to have any interest in this sort of nonsense. Um, and then so when I actually wrote that book, um, the the publisher who'd been brave enough to to take the plunge and probably thought that they were, you know, on a, on a hiding to nothing, but thought, you know, you've got to take the odd risk in life. Let's just publish this mad stuff and, and, and see what happens. And, and as I was writing it, I put forward things like, Xanthoria, the wonderful golden lichen that, that likes light and is more common on the south side of roofs and trees and stuff like that. And, and she came back to me and said, no, 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 think of Auntie Brenda at her kitchen table on a Sunday. She doesn't want to see the word Xanthoria. I was like, okay, fair enough, you know, better than me. And that's what, And then what sort of happened, I, I don't know if it's a reflection of how 
reading has changed or society has changed or tastes have changed. I honestly have no idea. But what what happened was there's been, I, I got a new publisher, which was, which was part of it, but I got pushed in the other direction, which is people want expertise. They want, they, they want people who know a subject, live a subject, breathe a subject and can, even if they can't follow you in, in every sort of way you go, don't, obviously don't patronize anybody that, that no writer would want to do that. But at the same time, don't, don't be scared of, you know, <laughs> taking them on quite an intense ride. And so the, if, if, if you, if you, you know, if you have read more than one of my books, you may see this happening occasionally. So the Walker's Guide to Outdoor Clues and Signs, the stuff in that, which uh, in certain places is, okay, let's do this. Let's, <laughs> let's really do this. You know, there, there are star techniques in that, that, um, you know, when, when I wrote it, I'd be very confident in saying that fewer than one in a million people would, would have any idea about. Um, so, but then, but then on the flip side, you, um, I, I want, I want as many people as possible to read my books. Um, in the early days, it was about making a living. You know, if, if, you know, X copies weren't sold, I wasn't hundred percent convinced I'd be able to carry on doing this. I'm now, now fortunate enough that I can look at it in a, in a more sort of, um, uh, altruistic way in the sense that I, I do want, I feel quite, um, I feel a bit evangelical and, and, ambassadorial towards natural navigation i i i want to be you know helping the subject to to not die out and that's that to do that i have to get the balance right because if i if i excite one in ten people uh but freak out nine in you know then nine out of ten i'm not doing the subject justice so it's, it's a really fun balancing act and yeah. uh, I'll, I'll keep on getting it right and wrong <laughs> yeah well i think in this book definitely there are um signs which don't I, tell him you got it wrong no i'm not going to tell him okay. you got it wrong I'm going to say it's right in, in a kind of um it's aspirational you know so and in that way that yeah. your publisher said you know you want to be able to read something where you go whoa this is expert knowledge um and, and yeah it's aspirational because there are some signs which i've read in this book and been able to <clears throat> kind of pick up quite quickly but i must say kind of one at a time or two at a time um and then kind of go back and reread those chapters and ch check what i'm doing um before i can then get a new one under my belt and into my kind of common usage in, in my own life but there are um like yeah some of them are easier like the ramp effect i've used that quite a lot and uh orion finding south from orion so I, I found orion really interesting go on um because i because when we came to see you talk you you had some lots of visuals of orion and i remember thinking um you know it was tracking east and west and looking at the belt and the sword yeah. and which way it pointed and i remember thinking at the time i don't completely get this i get east to west yeah but i don't get much more of the angle yeah but then a few weeks later when i got to that bit in the book I, I sort of understood it at like level two yeah yeah do you know what I mean I, yeah. I feel like you could reread some of the books and you might just go the first time go okay yeah. I'm just getting that's how you find north or trees are funny shapes got it Tristan let's move on and then the next time you read it you get like oh they're funny shapes because of that yeah and you? you have to see it in the real world that's the thing so it was only Orion the penny only dropped for me when I noticed it walking to my friend's house the other night and um and I suddenly was like, oh, hang on, I remember saying about that. What was it? Oh, it was the, and, I, and it was very bright, so the sword was very bright. And then mm. I was like, oh, my gosh, I am walking due south. And that was such a powerful, joyful feeling. It's completely addictive, isn't it? I can completely yeah. see how once you start 
owning it and going, oh, I, you know, I know this thing. And especially because it's something that isn't common knowledge anymore and it's something that you have and you, it's a new thing. Um, but there are bits in your book, as I say, that are kind of like, whoa, that's next level. Like the chapter, I can't remember exactly what you um, call it, but uh, when you're in a woodland and you're talking about how paths, even paths made by animals, so muzzets and stuff, reflect more light than ground that hasn't been trodden a lot so you can kind of see lights yeah. in woodland um, um and so i was telling you about this one, like in, in our the, woods in the woods and yeah. i was trying to because we have got a, an old track um and yeah you're talking about on certain types of day in certain types of weather you'll be able to sense where the path is just by looking through the trees because of the light levels and i was sort of like whoa that is that's definitely something that's the next level for that's me Jedi <laughs> that's, Jedi but that, that, that's that's really uh, interesting to hear because that you're you're right that is not something that we um, are necessarily going to see every time we go outdoors. But a lot of this stuff, the fast, slow thinking, uh, uh, musical instruments are quite a good analogy where the, the logic's actually very simple. Okay, the, you know, the, when when badgers or, or deer are following a certain path, that is going to change the ground in, in a number of different ways, and that is going to change the way light reflects. Okay, that's quite... I don't think anybody's going to be freaked out by that, but actually seeing it... Yeah. So to me, that's very like... I, I sometimes sort of say in talks I may have done and the one you came to, I, I can I can tell anybody in the world how to become a world-class um, concert pianist. You play the right notes in the right way, in the right order. That's similar to this sort of thing. The, the, the logic is very simple, but, but it's entirely up to us how much we, you know, in, in truth, you know, how many minutes or hours we choose to, to devote to it. It just so happens by, by coincidence that this morning I was doing a lot of that particular um, signs. As you all know from the book, I, clues and signs are things that can give us information in either a fast or a slow way. But, but in the book, I talk about keys. These are the things that give us a very fast sense without having to do any slow thinking. And by the end of, um, we were walking, I think it was about um, maybe three hours. Uh, and we'd started looking at... Um, uh, with my friend John, we'd started looking at uh, various things and animal signs and trails. And, and by the end of the walk, because that's what we'd chosen to focus on, the, these, these trails were almost luminous, as in what had, what had taken a bit of a little bit of concentration, even for two people who, who are doing a lot more of this than, than most people choose to. Uh, it taken maybe a sort of uh, 20 seconds of kind of, like, oh, yeah, there it is. Um, by the end, it was laughable. It's like we, we, we wouldn't even point, we'd almost not point them out to each other. And we were, we were sensing deer and, and seeing deer that were probably around us at the beginning of the walk. But by the end, we'd, we'd got into that kind of zone where we could almost sort of just go, there is going to be one through there. And then we'd see it. And, and that's, um, as I say, it, it's, not, it's not complex. The, the theory is not complex, but it, I can't make the, the I can't, you know, you can't you can't play the piano brilliantly uh, without a bit of practice, or in my case, you can't play it at all well even after a lot of practice. But that's a different story. <laughs> so, in terms in terms of these these outdoor skills, um, I can I can sort of show show people what the key is, and then people can choose. Um, you know, out of the fifty odd in in that book book Wild Signs, I would expect. 
people on average to find five or six that they they just feel an affinity towards and a, and mm. either because you know in the in the case of your listeners they, they think yes that is something i can share or, or that's going to form part of a um something we're going to do outdoors tomorrow or just because it's sometimes hard to articulate but it's a very personal thing that just chimes um yeah. and I, I don't i don't expect all, all 52 to to do that yeah um it's interesting you talk about the, you know, practicing. So even <clears throat> someone like yourself who has kind of gained these skills and, and written about it, but then in the course of a morning, um, you, and practicing a, a particular uh, thing to look out for becomes, you know, it's just there. Um, this week, I don't know if you've ever seen these uh, cards called Go Find It. It's like a game. Have you seen? No, I haven't. Um, they're really they're really simple but really fun. And they, they come in a little drawstring bag and they have a word um, on them like, crunchy or dead or slimy or whatever and um you can play it with kids so it's a good thing to encourage um kids to go on a walk so it's not like we're going on a walk we're going to play this game and as you're in this natural environment you can like find things that fit the card basically um and you can play it in those different ways and do it like in a really high octane we've got 30 seconds to find as many things as we can that are bumpy or whatever um and we were playing this game with some families uh this week and um, having played it for maybe about 10 minutes, I then took um, some families, really little children and their parents, on a bit of a woods walk just looking for natural treasure. And I found because I'd played the game for 10 minutes, it was like I had new eyes. It was incredible. I was suddenly seeing things on the floor um, that I would never have noticed. I would have walked straight past. But because I'd spent 10 minutes practicing, I then was like, oh, my gosh, there's an acorn on the ground. Hang on a minute. It's it's re- it's sprouted. It's growing in the ground. I can't pick it up. Oh my gosh! And I, you know, on that walk, because I'd got my eye in, I then noticed all this, um, all this stuff. And I was wondering whether you think that um, if you don't practice it, you can kind of lose these skills a bit, even after practicing it for years. Maybe. Do you feel like you have to keep your your eye in and your hand in, otherwise you begin to lose it a bit? Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but and I occasionally, um, like I think we all do in different areas of our life, we worry about sort of skills atrophying and things like that, and and it becomes almost a sort of uh, an anxiety. Of, oh my God, that's going to be gone forever. I'm never ever going to be able to do that again. But the, the good news in this area is that because the 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 theory is so simple and it is hardwired into us um, our ability to do it. That all that really uh, changes is is our is our sort of currency. So um, perhaps sport is a is a better analogy in that particular sense. In the in the sense that you know if if somebody enjoys sort of playing tennis but doesn't play for six months of the year, they don't expect to go out there and and it all to work straight away. Um, it's it's similar in this area, and I find there are wonderful sort of seasonal tie-ins. So by sort of early November. Um, I, I, I know, as you'd expect, most of the constellations I use regularly, I, I'm not, I'm not going to forget. There are one or two sort of, you know, very minor ones. I go, oh, I haven't seen, haven't seen that old friend for a while. Exactly the same thing with, with wildflowers in spring and, and birds throughout the year. And uh, there's, there's a, there's no danger that we're going to lose the memory of what is possible. We all that happens is, is that our our um, our currency fluctuates, and that and that's absolutely fine. Um, I think that's all, all part of the fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you um, talked before that you do uh, that court that in person courses on natural navigation um, with different groups. I think you've mentioned a couple of different ones. One 
And did you say you did some work with the military? Yes, yeah, I do um, do a few a few different uh, jobs for the for the military. Uh, I've I've sort of helped them with giving them another another perspective on um, image analysis. So on the, on the side of military intelligence, they're they're um, you know they've got experts um, who who I've spent a little bit of time with who who are looking at stuff which it just looks like visual gobbledygook. It just makes no sense at all. But but they are skilled in that and they are seeing, you know, military um, units and formations and things like that because they're practiced at doing that. And at the same time, I was able to kind of say, here, let me show you a picture. And and then I'd ask them a question which would seem like gobbledygook to them. I mean, the one in particular was I, there's an image I use sometimes in indoor talks and, and things where I, I say, Here's a have a look at this this image and it's a picture of a, a house um, and there are some lights on and various other things and you you can sort of see some some um, orangey light in one corner which which may or may not be um, the sun and that sort of thing um, but but that's all you can really see and they they and most people were probably expecting me to say you know what direction are we looking and there are approximately a, a, a dozen maybe more clues to direction in the picture but what I actually say is um, this, this is a photo of a house uh, somewhere in the home counties. I can't tell you exactly where. Tell me what the um, oceans were doing in the Pacific when this picture was taken. That's why I was there for that. It was just, just you know, it was, it was hopefully a, a fun lateral thinking exercise because we all have that when we're, when we get in the groove of doing things, and it's a little bit like you were saying, um, and we were chatting about when, when kids literally take you off the path, there can be a resistance to it because we know the path, we know where the path is going, that sort of thing. But, you know, metaphorically, they, they are showing us different ways of looking at things. And that's sometimes what I'm doing with different groups, whether it's the military or other. And, and then on the pure navigation side, I do work, do work with them as well, sort of helping. I, um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I helped them design a course in terms of how, to, how soldiers who've been involved in a, in, a, in an ambush can get fast across a town without using any any equipment at all um so that's now part of their their training but I, I the lovely thing about my work that i'm very very grateful for is that i get to work with people on such a wide spectrum um yeah. it's women's women's institute one day it's it's special forces the next it's artists the day after that it's um botanists geologists zoologists um you know astrophysicists it's you know i'm really spoiled in the um in the in the breadth of the subject and the breadth of the people who who've been kind enough to take an interest do you find when you're doing the course so again having uh, so i read a uh, two or three of your books and and then came to see you talk and then we've read this other book and as you say i can i can definitely sense that a um zealous is a strong word but more and more passion it comes through and when they saw you talk in person you're clearly very very passionate about um the subject do you ever find um and it's similar actually to when we're running sessions with children and um so like i've been reading some books about um earthworms recently and then the kids went digging for worms and i could feel myself just vomiting information about worms at these children ah. just going oh my god my brain is so full and it's all so interesting and just have it all you know and do you do you find that when you get with uh, you know presumably uh, you have to sort of tailor a women's institute group very differently to um the the military groups but how do you how do you not just go let me tell you everything about every star and it just you know run off the rails that must be so 
difficult to control yourself and um, sort of pitch well as a teacher, I guess. Oh, it's, it's interesting and, and interesting question. Sort of very, very sort of kind things to say, but I, um, it's it's toughest when giving a talk to a large audience because I'm I'm a great believer and I think. I think all good actors, and I'm certainly not one of those, but I think all good actors treat each audience as a sort of individual organism, as in it's not, yeah. it's not, you know, it's not a couple hundred, you know, people in a in a sort of giant mass. It's it's uh, um, it, it's something, and that that is interesting. But I I've always partly because when I started doing this, I was I was pretty um pretty nervous on stage as as lots of people are, um, and so I. I you know, I wanted to do the best, and I wanted, and and part of that was trying to uh, was inevitably being super sensitive to the the group I'm with. I mean, if you're with three people for for half a day, um, there are lots and lots of ways you can you can tune into what their likes and dislikes are. Um, I wrote a book called How to Connect with Nature, actually, which I think it's in that that I mention that I if I've got a group of twenty people, there will always be um, three couples. Um, and therefore, three people who've effectively been dragged along. You know, yeah. the numbers there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and this is something you must have come across in your, your work lots. But it's, uh, and that for me is, is that's, that's the real test. So sometimes what I'm doing is I'm eavesdropping. Um, just because what I want to know. So in that book, one of the premises of that, and, and one of the things I feel very, very passionate about, is that there is a route into nature for everybody. But if you if you try and hard sell the wrong route to somebody, yeah. you don't get yeah. you don't get anywhere. So so in very very sort of broad terms, we have um, going back to our, our our sort of ancient origins. We we have certain practical affinities you know we we have a an unusual interest in in food cooking catering um you know and that obviously lends itself to something like foraging or we might be quite sort of restless travel loving types that might be natural navigation but but there are so many subtleties within this like if you're if you're somebody who's very very interested in a in something to do with the home and there are a whole lot of different things going on there you can have interior design or you can be really interested in you know steel girders you know it's it's but you know within that the, there is a structural building part to your character uh, and then you can start taking a real interest in, you know, the way certain woods will rot and not hold things up and other woods will, will give a, you know, cherry woods a nice rich colour, pines are a much, much lighter colour, these sorts of things. So if you, you know, if you have a group, sort of coming coming back to your sort of question, if, if you have a group, um, you know, their interests are going to be narrow enough that, that if you do just bang on about everything, you're going to you're going to miss them with ninety percent of it. So the real, it's very hard with a group of two hundred, but with a smaller group, it, it's it's for me, and I don't don't always succeed, but I always try and go. Okay, these these people by and large are absolutely fascinated by the shape of the land. You know, there's a lot we can talk about there. They seem to go a bit a bit cold if if we start talking about astronomy. So we can just pretty much bin that, and that's 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 the challenge after a few years. I think is um. You know, still, still, you know, uh, finding that, seeking that connection, um, uh, fascinating. I love that. Sorry, I love yeah. that that, um, that idea of going back to ancient interests, like evolution-wise, about food and mm. uh, and shelter building. I think that's probably very true, and again, ties into forest school very, very neatly yeah. in terms of yeah, appealing to people's kind of ancient. And ancient interests. I think that's. Yeah. I've never heard that before. That's very. I sometimes yeah. think of it. It's a. It's a, it's a little bit like uh, each group 
is a lock and you've got a drawer full of spare keys and I'm just putting different keys in and going, is it this one? Is it this one? Yeah. Is it this one? And when you find the key that goes click and you're like, yes, yeah. right. Yeah. Now the lock's gone. Let's. We've let's. definitely found that with um, uh, food and, and cooking, that that is a very a key that very commonly fits so we um we just noticed without any kind of prior design really um it happened and we realized wow that's a very interesting um effect that um we cook a lot over the campfire with groups and one time we were cooking some kind of pancake there may have been some like wild garlic in it or something something was being fried something was being cooked over fire and there were three uh, frying pans on and um and I think Lewis and I started off the process, but then just passed the spatulas to some parents that were around and just, you know, invited them to take over and take ownership of it. And then noticed how that kind of unlocked the group and people who mm. never spoke to each other suddenly were speaking to each other. And it was that idea of, you know, they took ownership over the provisional food for themselves and their children and everybody else. And were, um, you know, saying, oh, this is ready, you know come and eat it or whatever and talking to each other and uh, and now we we do plan to kind of put that in quite early mm. in um so we, we usually have our forest school in uh well always in, in blocks so that uh, a family will join and they'll commit to coming for a certain amount of time rather than just coming once and going away again um yeah, and yeah. so whenever a new group is coming together or quite a few people are, new people are joining we tend to plan that in quite early on social glue in yeah just and it's just all it about in. the food you know and it, and it doesn't have the same effect if we cook it and then hand it no. around it's all about and we take a step back and they're by the fire by themselves or sounds very manipulative when you say it like that it does, like we're but puppeting it, but it's a it's a little key it's a it's a thing that just yeah. um, and I, I think I think that that reminds me of worst experiences for me at school, and I know I'm not alone in this. Which is when things are too regimented, and you know you are going to be told to do things and expected to do things, particularly in front of other people, that are a bad fit for your your aptitude or confidence or whatever it is. So mm. to give you to give you you know actual practical examples, if you if you go into a gymnasium and you you line 20 kids up and say right we're all going to try and climb to the top of these high ropes as fast as we can or something like that there are going to be certain kids within that group who are going to go this is not fun this i really am not going to enjoy this my mates going to laugh at the fact i can only get halfway up and that sort of thing and you know um uh, and yet if you go into a gymnasium this is what you guys are all about as i understand it and i'm not an expert in what you do but my understanding is it's more a case of we're going to go into a gymnasium and, and, and see what happens. We can kind of tell you what, yeah. what you know, steer you towards certain things, but we're not going to tell you you have to go up the road. Instead, you, you can you can have a go um, on the springboard or the this or the that, and and, uh, and it doesn't all have to be physical. It can be, you know, you know somebody can, you know, the, the gym needs redecorating, the this, the that, and that, and there'll be something that kind of, kind of fits fits uh, our aptitude. Um, and, and that's, yeah, I think that's, I think most, I think probably inspired by forest schools and, and other sort of movements. I think schools are, I get the impression, getting better at that, certainly than than they, they were in years gone by. But um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I don't not. Know. <laughs> You're not, no. Oh, I, I, maybe I'm too uh, optimistic. But. Might, do you know what? I do think there's a... Uh, um, uh, a bit of a bias where like people who are outdoorsy naturally end up sort of more drawn to schools that are more like that and then have a perception of like oh all schools are doing um forest school twice a week and have a thing and then you you know if you looked at the broad spectrum there's going to be you know a load of inner city schools somewhere um you know doing 
not that kind of stuff. Well, <laughs> also, you're talking to two ex-teachers here, and we we left um, for similar reasons in that we found that the curriculum was becoming very narrow and prescriptive and didn't give children much time for kind of freedom and, uh, you know, the thing you're des- describing, the example of the of the gym, you know, it was very much like, no, we do it this way, and this is the way you have to do it, and which I think is an old-fashioned way. It was almost like the Victorian kind of style of education was, was coming back in. I wonder, if I can ask you, because it kind of ties into what we were saying about... Um, you know things being directed and um so lots of kind of well i think there is a move in education uh outside of schools to to be less didactic and less you must look at this you must sit here you must do these things um but do you think there's a uh, i mean how do you find the balance between um you know, we're not going to say to children, yeah, 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 eat all the mushrooms. You'll find out. I don't want to tell you. I don't want to step on your toes, kids. You know. <laughs> um, but, but is there a risk that in being too uh, too far the other way that we miss out? You know, that there's that phrase, isn't there, standing on the shoulders of giants? And particularly with things that are in your books have been amassed through tens of thousands of years of human navigation. And that if we don't sort of pass them on in you know um verbally or through books and things that they'll just be missed and that we're sort of going oh no we all have to find these things out from scratch on our own and that's not a very efficient way of learning yeah i I think i think that is an interesting area and i can't i I can't claim to have the answer to the, the broader sort of anthropological sort of knot within that but the thing the thing that motivates me is is and this is poacher turned gamekeeper in a sense that because when I was young I wasn't I wasn't one of those uh, kids crawling through the undergrowth of the magnifying glass looking for creepy crawlers I really wasn't you know up to a certain age nature was green stuff that got in my way I wanted to get to the top of a mountain and I couldn't go the way I wanted because there was stuff growing that I had no idea what it was and had no interest what it was it was just in my way so I did not I was not from day one a, a naturalist and therefore it comes back slightly to that so what thing but I I think um uh there is there is a danger that these these things go sort of super fallow for want of a better way of putting it but Mm. the 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 best counter to that that i i try and strive towards is is play to our our brain strengths and sense of enjoyment rather than um so i i don't succeed always again but i i try to avoid the words ought should things like that because i think the second in nature writing you're using words like that you've lost the argument because if 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 you say to a group if you picked 100 people off the street let's say in london uh, and and your task is to get them interested in nature if you start you know doing ridiculous things like saying you should spend time outdoors you should stuff like that you you you've mm-hmm. lost if however you you say Look for the flyer Garrick. It's red. It's got those white sort of, you know, dots on it. You would have seen it in all sorts of stories. It's the most popular fairy story, sort of toadstool. When you see that, you will find birch trees nearby. And birch trees show you that you're at the edge of the woodland. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go to the middle of the woods and you are going to find your way out just using um, these brightly colored fungi. There are no, there's no or there's no shit, stuff like that. But there's a puzzle to solve. Yeah, uh, it's play. It sounds like yeah. play. You're setting yeah. up a game. Yeah, uh, and that I do, and that that is the. Um, I I think it's well known that you. I, I think it's fair. It's almost a, a a law within psychology that you can't change human behaviour um, by by 
telling people to change effectively it's it's um, sure. not i'm not not articulating that terribly well but the but the but that's why i believe we see when when the government is spending a lot of money and putting a lot of effort to change our behavior it's related to things like nudge theory but actually it's it, it's deeper and much older than that which is it which is storytelling so if yeah. you say if you put on the pack of on a, a pack of cigarettes you know you know 17 percent of people who smoke die significantly earlier than if they had never smoked or or, or something like that um it, it as i understand it it does not have any more impact than um the the two words sort of smoking kills because that's the story um but if but equally you both of those will have a lot more effect than um the the words do not smoke um and 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 everything everything within nature i think is is related to those sorts of concepts where um we need to be we don't need to be telling a story the whole time. We, we can, we, but we can give people puzzles to solve and and mysteries and riddles and and clues and and um, and that I think is at that point the brain sort of goes, oh right, yeah. So this is actually, you know, this is this is for me. This is what I do. Um, uh, my ancestors. Yeah. Sorry. It's it is like play for grown ups. I think, and we we spend quite a lot of our time kind of reading and and talking about play for children. Um, but for I don't, maybe that's just a personal reaction to it. It feels like. Play. Well, I, I was going to say I, I wondered if one of the you know you 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 said Tristan when you started writing that you uh, the the publishers weren't sure you know who who was going to read it, and I I wonder particularly think with things like navigation, it kind of ties in as well to bushcraft and. Um, you know things like that, that uh, botany and stuff, where um, these skills have been honed in our brains for ten thousand years, but until uh, f up until the last thousand years, they were life or death skills. You know, it, it's much, it's much, uh, it's a very different scenario. Saying you, you have to know which way uh, the sea is because that is really important to whether we eat or not this week, compared to. Um, uh, not to trivialise it, but, you know, your brain works better without stress. So not having that stress of like, oh, God, you know, we're not as foraging for Mars bars. We, you know, we we will get home. You can, maybe not in Devon, but you can call an Uber in most places in the country. You know, we're, we're free of that stress when we're learning these skills, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... Um, the timeframes you mentioned there are, are interesting because I think it's I think we actually need to rewind quite a bit because the the first agricultural revolution, um, to the best of my understanding, was about ten thousand years ago. So that's actually if we're going to see this as a as a negative trend, uh, a rot or a decay, the the, the rot set in ten thousand years ago when we stopped moving. Right. Um, and and then you know we can look at things like the industrial revolution, things like that that changed life. I mean the thing that I find um, you know. Uh, extraordinary um, uh, and a bit too depressing to really try and get my head around is that is is the fact that both of those revolutions have made us um, less well off in every sense, pretty much. So, mm. if um, you know, if 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 cash is the only measure of wealth, then then arguably not in certain parts of the world. But but free time is is a fantastic measure of wealth because if you know if your society is really flourishing, you can afford to spend a, a few hours doing doing. Um, leisurely things and our, our, if you use the free time measure our, the amount of free time that pretty much all all societies have had has has, has been decreasing for 10,000 years um which you know there are, there are little sort of spikes in the other direction um but but yeah i mean i um uh 
yeah, I, I, I don't know if that addresses your point exactly, but I find it a bit alarming. Have you read Sapiens? By yes, Harry? Yeah, yeah, and I think he, he picks up that same point there. Yeah. I think that's where I first came across that, or it, it was certainly something like that, yeah. Yeah, I had to stop reading it, it got too depressing. And he, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just like in a dark place, but um, he talks about, uh, about cows as well. He says that... Um, uh, cows as animals have like an incredible their population has uh, been very successful but if you look at their you know overall happiness and freedom it's just zero basically and uh, yeah it was just like oh god and sort of equating yeah, and wheat wheat owning us wheat uh, you know yes. since, since yes. the uh, agricultural revolution yeah. I'm going to move on from something very depressing because okay. Gemma's looking sad I'm about to cry uh, um, <laughs> Just do you, do you find um, when you I think are sort of working on your navigation skills? Do you give people um, any advice on kind of whether it's better to have a base and learn one site very well versus going to you know like you're saying getting semi lost in lots of places and and you know because we quite often talk about um, we will uh, I don't know if you, are you aware of sit spots as a as an activity. No. So, so sit spots is, is one of these, it's trendy now through mindfulness, but essentially it's sitting in one place in a woodland or a natural space and just being there and taking it all in. Um, and quite often the activity is you repeat it, so you, you try and go back to the same space and just sit on your own, so not as a group, you just individually go and find it. Um, and one of the ways that we sort of half manipulate children into it is that we will play um, stealth games like um, you know, tagging games or hide and seek, and um, yeah. while the children are going off and hiding, they're being incredibly attentive to noise and their surroundings and the space that they're in. They don't know that you haven't started looking for them yet, and that you you've deliberately left it a long time because they're so their kind of circle of awareness and because you've got a big, be... you've got a cup of coffee and you just want to chill. Yeah, you sort of chill by the fire for a bit and like, leave them to it. But you know, when you're hiding and you notice that if you start playing it as well and you're playing a big game of you hide and seek, you prey. become prey and your awareness um, goes. But you're kind of prey, but you know you're playing. Yeah. So in the beginning, you might sit there and be listening, and your observation and sort of circle of concentration is quite wide because you're waiting for it to be found. And then when you kind of relax a bit and realise they're not anywhere near you and you can't hear them, your circle of concentration becomes smaller and smaller and smaller until um, yeah, you know, you might look up for the first time in ages and just go, oh yeah, okay, I haven't looked into the trees for a while. And then you might look really closely down at the ground and go, oh, there's a beetle there, you know, and your observation skills kind of become warmed up. Anyway, yeah, so what I was kind of, I was, yeah, but it's that thing of what I was going to ask is that, that repeatedly going to the same spot and getting a, a real depth of knowledge for an environment or a space um, obviously takes time and takes lots of visits, um, but then it's also valuable to go and see lots of different spaces and to go, right, well, can you apply your skills in this woodland and on this moorland and then this heathland? And, you know, how do you find the balance between that kind of depth and breadth, I guess, is there? Um, it's, yeah, it's it's an interesting area and it's an area I've been very fortunate in because it was never part of my original thinking. I mean, I didn't really have anything approaching a sort of plan because I didn't think any of this would work. So uh, it was really a case of wake up in the morning and, you know, run with it until you hit the brick wall, which is probably going to be around the corner. But I, but what I have discovered is that natural navigation is, is, is very fortunate in the sense it is largely about, you know, universal principles. So 
there are individual species, and I've, I've mentioned, mentioned a few of them, which give you insight within a certain landscape. But that principle applies all over the, all over the world. So once you know the principle, you, you can try it anywhere. And, and that has been, it's been hugely fortunate to me in the sense that I, I'm not a great fan of super, super, um, you know, localized academic knowledge. You know, I have huge respect for people who, who've spent 20 years studying the same square kilometer and their work has helped me enormously. But, but I actually, I really am fascinated and like to share, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a rather grandiose way of putting it, but, but, but the universal sort of truths, you know, things like the way the sun, moon and stars move in the sky is, is not random, it's not accidental, it's a reflection of the way the earth spins. And once we understand that very simple relationship, we can find our way anywhere on earth by looking at the, the day or the night sky. Exactly the same thing on the land, except the, there it's the sun and the wind are leaving footprints. Once we understand what those footprints look like, you can you could be anywhere from you know Australia, Timbuktu, Siberia, or, or Hyde Park, and and the same principles apply. Uh, one you mentioned earlier, um, you know the ramp, you know the, the the way wind shapes things, whether it's a, a rock in the desert or or some long grasses in in the field next to you, is it's a universal sort of principle, and therefore um, where you are in a sense, um, which which is something that really delights me, is you're just getting a different. A different view in on you know to come up with a slightly weird uh, analogy which i don't think i've ever used before but imagine a, a sort of giant house that, that contains you know the truth of nature where you are is actually just a window you can choose all sorts of different windows to look in you're still once you understand the, the core principles you're still going to find the same thing and i i just see natural navigation as a way into looking into that kind of house of truth and within that it's not natural navigation truths it's it's it, it, it's what nature is and, and at that point we tiptoe towards you know more philosophy than naturalism but but so i i would so if somebody's very very new to um natural navigation i i don't go anywhere near, near those sorts of ideas because because I, I do want them to just have a bit of fun before they they feel they need to do any sort of head scratching so i i i, I just it's, it's just sort of clues and signs that will work in in their in their part of the world so Sun, moon, stars, plants, animals, um, even buildings. If it's if it's somebody who spends most of their time in, in a town, but then it, it's a case of showing people how the bits join together, and then it starts to get a bit more exciting because then we get into more uh, what would be more recognised as e ecology slash habitat, but turned on it on its head. So, so what I mean by that is quite often uh, we read about ecology and habitat along the lines of I want to see you know butterfly X. Where does butterfly X live? Oh, it lives in this sort of habitat. Let's go to that sort of habitat and we'll find that butterfly. Well, natural navigation is using all that same knowledge and, and logic, but turning on its head. Ah, I've seen that butterfly. That means I'm in a place with, with stinging nettles and plants A, B and C and probably these other animals. And it means I'm at this height and I'm on the south side of the slope. And it means it, it is. So it goes from very, very simple clues and signs to map making. Um, so to me, it's it's. You know, have have you know, have a bit of fun with a few things that work for you. Once once you feel you're pushing out the other side of that, join a few of them together, which quickly leads into kind of map making. Um, and at that point, getting to know a local area actually is is helpful because if you're constantly 
if you're constantly trying to recognize things uh, and you're put in a different place every every couple of weeks it, it is a bit more challenging but but as i say in a rather long roundabout way it's the it's the underlying principles the the kind of truths underneath it all that are exciting to me not the you know there's no i get i get asked a few times you know what's your favorite place in the world and i i it sounds like a very sort of wet answer but it doesn't really work like that for me because i i'm looking for the things that are not location specific yeah it did make me um think one of the things we wrote down that we wanted to ask you and it kind of ties into that is uh, i was wondering if there's anything um that you used to be able to rely on as a constant or as a sign um, that because of the climate changing or because of light pollution that you go, oh, well, I used to be able to recommend, maybe not that the sign has completely disappeared, but that you might go, I used to recommend this as a beginner sign, but now it's become so much more difficult to notice that I've, uh, I wouldn't recommend it anymore. Or Do you know what I mean? Has it, Have any of those truths changed or is anything harder to read than it was however long ago well i mean my my limited understanding of the climate change science is such that it would be very odd if if we had witnessed large change because mm-hmm. um we're, we're talking uh, you know at this moment in time that the sorts of changes as i say you know to date are not such that we're, we're looking at large environmental change at this moment in time so I genuinely don't know whether it's related to climate change or not, but uh, there were four very, very sort of snowy winters in a row about um, a decade ago, I think it was, uh, and not so many more recently. But but it's not for me to say whether that's related to climate change. So I love there are you know dozens of snow clues, and when you know where where I live in the South Downs, we're 500 feet up, and we do get we do get snow most winters, but not. But I I just can't call that as a climate thing because I don't have the authority to do it, but. On a, on a, you know, there's definitely um, signs of mildness. So, for example, there's an algae called Trentipolia, which is uh, it's a sort of reddy, rusty, browny colour that that does not like surfaces that dry and does not thrive in any direct sunlight. So you'll see it in strips on the north side of, of trees. So there's like all of these things. There's a tiny bit more to the art of using it, but that that's but it, it does thrive in mild conditions and. Uh, my personal experience and what I hear from others is that it's marching north. Um, so it, it's it's you can find it over most of England, I believe now. Um, more common in the south and the north, but but my you you won't find many references to it in anything more than more than um, twenty years old because I don't think it it really existed here. But again, it's 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 you know it's above my pay grade to say whether that's related to climate change. Oh, or yeah. Uh, do do you was it a um uh, a difficult thing for you when you first started writing to to put things down in in a sort of permanent way? I mean, partly because um you know lots of what you're uh, writing about is very visual, so having to do it in words sometimes takes a little bit more. I know on your website and in your emails you send out quite a lot of. Um, you know, which way am I looking? Quizzes and things like that, and they're re- they're they're very enjoyable for anybody that's not subscribed. You should go and sign up yeah. to Tristan's email because they're just a, they're a really nice break when you go and you hear they're like, and you're like, oh Jesus, it's an email, and it's Tristan going, which way am I looking? And like, yes, <laughs> best distraction ever. <laughs> and um, 
Do you do you think that's something that you know, having put things down on paper and in concrete ways, changes it from what has been maybe an oral art or an oral education? Do, do, you know, for for quite a long time. Yes, yes, I I, I do think that's um, that's in, intriguing, and it is. You're right. It's a it's a it's a challenge as a writer. Do you write? It sounds like a question a writer would ask. We've dabbled, but we do a podcast because we like to ramble rather than <laughs> commit to anything. Podcasts give us the freedom to go, well, sort of maybe a thing that's a bit like this that you can't write. Yes, yeah, it is. Uh, there's, there's, um, there's a kind of flow that I think all writers have to, have to find where you don't, you don't sweat the small stuff at the wrong time. So if I'm not certain of a, a species name or a date or something like that, it, it, it's you can't sort of sit there going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I can't do the next sentence. So there's a kind of, there's, there's a knack everybody kind of learns kind of not leaving that, you know, hanging, but at the same time, um, but that's that's all very technical and dull. But I think in terms of the more, I think I think perhaps the more interesting side, whether, whether knowledge has been passed on um, orally is now becoming sort of codified. I, I did actually in, in in the last book, Wild Signs and Star Paths, I did try and address this in terms of the, um, there's a chapter I talk about the sort of luminaries of kind of who, those who've gone before us, the the, the hunter-gatherers and the, yeah. uh, uh, and in, in that area I'm, I'm you know, I don't, I, I think it's a, it's a debate that, that really, you know, we can enjoy rumbling on, but it, it's, um, I, I think it comes it comes a little bit back to the fast and, and fast and slow thinking in the sense that in an ideal world I'd I'd want to kind of sort of show things to people but perhaps not even in a didactic way instead of pointing at something and sort of saying um, this this wildflower um, will will only tolerate um, damp uh, shady conditions therefore we tend to find it on the north side of banks right let's move on to the next thing um, I, th- I think we have probably evolved to to learn those things in a less you know less structured way even than that which is that um we we pick these things up by you know massive um almost background repetition rather than foreground in your face type sort of things but i i think the the lovely thing about setting things down is is that it um it, it feels like uh territory that's hard to lose in a in a broader you know, social learning sense. So, um, I mean, we do, humanity is notorious for two steps forward, one step back, and, and occasionally the other way around. But but, but once once we've learned something and we put it down in writing, whoever it is, and that is the whole basis of academia, isn't it? That, that yeah. You, yeah. Some, somebody spots that, um, you know, a metal reacts in a certain way to a temperature, right, I'm going to write an academic paper on that. Nobody need, you know, go and do that experiment again. They can take it as read. It's been peer-reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in nature writing, um, there, are, there are different strands to nature writing. What's generally called nature writing, um, I, I think is all good stuff, but I'm, I sometimes sort of see it as nice cup of tea and biscuit type writing, which is it, it's you read it and you have a nice experience, but you don't actually come away that much wiser about the outdoors world. Um, and then there are other types of, of, of nature writing, which I put myself in the camp of, which is where you're not, you're, you're, you're going to try and entertain, but you're trying to inform as well. And if one of them has to suffer slightly, it may be the entertaining side. I'm constantly trying to get those two things because the most important thing to me is that the knowledge is there, even if, as you, you've both sort of said, uh, in very sort of nice ways, but you know, it, some of the stuff is a struggle. Sometimes you do have to sort of reread it. And, and if, if you're having to reread a chapter, I've probably 
rewritten the chapter about 27 times and probably struggled with the concepts within it for about 20 years. So, so but then that's that's a fair trade, isn't it? That's, that's kind of what I guess. I guess that's kind of going back to what we were saying before about reacting to audiences. And one of the advantages that we have being face to face with our groups and our, our, our students is that we can see facial expressions and we can see that puzzled look or the eyes glaze over and go, I've got to shift tack here. You know, I've got to attack this in a different way or put a different key in. When you're writing a book, it must be such a challenge to to write something down and go, well, I think people will get that. I, you know, you, you've yeah, got yeah. you've got no immediate feedback from your reader. Yeah, the, the editor has to, you know, take on a, a huge task there because sometimes, uh, I mean, I have, I have um, a wonderful editor and editors and uh, there's, there's a... Something I, I wrote a book called How to Read Water once, and in the back of that, I, I'm thanking all the people involved. And as part of those acknowledgements, I, I think I started it by saying that um, I, I was once told that from the moment a writer thinks they've finished a book to that book appearing on a shelf anywhere, there are 38 stages, and the author will be involved in most of them. Now, that's the sort of fact that you have to selectively, you have to have selective amnesia, because if, you, if you're if you halfway through a book and you remember that, you're just not, it's, yeah. it's, it's like somebody's telling you that the mountain that was 10,000 feet is suddenly 18,000 feet. You just, when you're 5,000 feet up, you don't want to hear that sort of nonsense. Just so the cloud moves across <laughs> and you see the actual piece. Yeah, classic, classic sort of full summit thing. So, but, but part of that process is is that sort of, you know, that's why editors are are you know very very skilled people because they are they are sitting on the on the reader's side of it and imagining themselves into an awful lot of you know different head spaces and everything else. Um, but then it's it's a it's a really fun dialectical tussle between the author and editor. And I'll give you one example. Um, both my agent and my editor, both hugely experienced uh, in lots of different genres, um, including mine. Uh, told me about a book called The Walker's Guide to Outdoor Clues and Signs that there were two chapters that just had to go. They went, love the book, everything about it. Oh, wonderful, wonderful stuff. But these two chapters have to go. And they were two chapters about me walking with a Dayak in Borneo. And and I could take their point that they didn't sit within, and they're, they're thinking as, as well as just sort of aesthetic ed- editorial concerns. They are thinking commercially as well, I imagine. It's like, yeah. To, to, you know, how relevant is Borneo to, you know, you know, Mark Brenda or whoever we're, we're, we're putting in that, in the, in that seat. Um, and I, I just, I dug my heels and not least because there was literally a lot of blood, blood, sweat and tears involved <laughs> in getting the knowledge that was in those chapters. But, but so there's part of that, but there's part of me, I just sort of went, no, my gut here is that they belong there. And, and that is, that is the constant artistic sort of arm wrestle. Um, it's, it's between the, you know the, the 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 consensus opinion, which is right most of the time by default. But whenever you're trying to do something a bit risky artistically, you you almost have to have that body disagree with you a little bit. Otherwise, you're not being original. And that that's the constant tussle. In that case, I prevailed, and and I I very very nearly didn't. And and the feedback I get is is generally those those are. Again, they might not be the most informative. I honestly don't know, but they are. They are. I get the feedback I get is, is they are two of the most entertaining chapters. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, it's a fun tussle. Yeah, um, I just wanted to go back to something um, you were talking about. Rather than going um, 
uh, we, we see this plant and it always grows here and so that's what the knowledge you can take from this and instead um, sort of just observing and noticing patterns rather than um, you know telling people this kind of knowledge and it just reminded me of um, have you read Wilding by Isabella Tree? Yes. Yeah and the bit um, where she talks about um, the nightingales and uh, their habitat after they've begun the rewilding process on uh, their land and um, and she's talking about a lot of nature writing actually being quite old and not necessarily always correct so we have learnt you know that nightingales always nest in this type of habitat because we've read about it in these books that were probably written in Victorian times and maybe occasionally refreshed but not very often particularly um, and actually they are observing the nightingales and noticing that they are nesting in different habitats to that that has always been written in uh, all this wildlife writing um, and that through constant observation and survey and obviously allowing the landscape to become um, the landscape that is uh, liked by nightingales then we notice a new a, a new trend or a difference that we didn't realize was there and it just struck me as you were as you were saying that um that I wondered whether one of the benefits of um kind of helping people to notice these signs and to have this nature connection um might be that new new knowledge is getting you know as you're because you're you're kind of describing a process of noticing patterns and applying like that story you said about your son and um, making inferences I guess rather than just learning stuff and practicing it and whatever um that you might actually be kind of educating a new generation of people who are spotting very important new signs and new knowledge about nature and I wondered if that's kind of one of your do you think of that as a goal yeah, when you're yeah. yes no uh it's not a um uh, a conscious goal but it probably is in there amongst the the motivating factors yes i mean i, I think that uh it's a, it's a wonderful book uh wilding yeah. i i learned lots through it and it, yeah. uh, anybody who's passionate about a um you know a, a particular project angle discipline or or whatever i i i always feel a sort of kinship with because there's a it, it takes a certain sort of strange mindset i'm not i don't want to tar isabella i haven't met her but i hope to one day but i don't want to tar with that brush but it, you know this kind of fanatical pushing in in, in one direction or for one thing or, or whatever is 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 um you know you, you've i think you do feel that kinship but but coming back to your, your your actual question i i i agree and i think in amongst that something that i have noticed is that there is a there is a delightful reverence for old knowledge which doesn't always tally with with reality so something i've noticed is that you only have to sprinkle in a reference to learning something from indigenous people and and people are just champing at the bit because it represents you know this sense of loss and you know wow so you you found there used to be a lot more sort of stories about discovering sort of gold in far-flung places well the goal of today is this sort of knowledge i think for, for people who are curious that way but very sadly you know, you, most most sort of indigenous communities have, um, you know, except the, the very, very, very remote cut-off ones, you know, deep in, deep in parts of South America and, and possibly one or two in Papua New Guinea and places like that. But by and large, you know, we are one generation too late for that sort of knowledge. Uh, they, they're already... Um, you know, I've, I've, I've spent time with people who, who still use blowpipes and things like that, but even, even they are... Um, uh, are not not where their their ancestors ancestors were but on the flip side and this this is part of what i what i was talking about the luminary side as well because of things like um our ability to codify knowledge through whether it's academic papers or books things like that we can push in new areas that 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 our ancestors just 
either, you know, both probably wouldn't have been able to and wouldn't have wanted to. So we have the luxury, because we're not hopefully going to starve in the next um, few months, of taking an interest in things that have no practical value. Um, So, and that's what I say to people is, is, is that natural navigation sort of fell between two stools. It was neither you know a practical necessity for for centuries um and neither is it actually a necessity when things have gone horribly wrong it sits between the two quite often i mean survivalists like it but i'm i i rail against that i'm saying to people this 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 is something to do because it gives you insight um entertainment knowledge you know all sorts of different parts of the jigsaw of outdoor understanding and hopefully wisdom but um necessity is, is is a very 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 small part of that but, but that then opens up a whole new area. So I can sort of take an interest in, in things that are, are giving me um, a sense of direction or a sense of, uh, an ability to make a map, which would never have been of practical value to humanity, I'm fairly sure. So there are, you know, <laughs> and that, that to me is very exciting. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are, I, I get emails and, and tweets and things like that from, from lots of people who are using this sort of, using this sort of approach now and seeing things. And I say it it in talks and courses. I say, you know, as a group, you will always um, go on to to see see and experience more of the world than I possibly can. So please share that. And and then that, that, it's really delightful for me. I get um, about once a week, I get an email from a a very strange place. and And it comes back to this kind of universal things underpinning everything. You know, once people know certain guiding principles you know and, and these are the keys and the signs but but a much broader one which is nothing is random so if you see something anomalous or something that's asymmetrical or, or anything that or a pattern um you just ask the question why and um you know quite often we don't get straight to the answer but there is nearly always an answer and that answer is part of the broadest richest map there is uh, it, it might uh, on our walk earlier this morning uh, we noticed that the ground changed color slightly we we went to investigate it turned out there were a lot of um, wood pigeon droppings in one place which brought me full circle to what i called the bird poo compass many years ago which is there are more branches on the south side of a tree you're going to get more more birds perching on the branches you're going to get more bird poo on the south side of a tree than the north side of the tree so it all um well, it, it comes back to your earlier point. I could go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I like that in your writing that you describe noticing a sign and um, not necessarily knowing what it means or noticing a pattern. And then you describe the process of kind of, oh, I keep noticing this thing. And then and I've worked out what it means. And I quite like that you describe that process because it means that we all have, uh, you know, as, you're, as you're saying, you're inviting... Um, we're going people, on the journey with you. Yeah, we're, you're inviting people to share what they've found and it makes you feel quite empowered that it isn't just you, the expert, talking to us and teaching us stuff. It's that we can notice stuff um, in our surroundings and, and uh, unlock clues for ourselves, which um, is really exciting. Yeah, I think I would... And not not to, to challenge the idea that it's not necessary, but I've definitely found the more of your books that I've read and the more um, I've spent time outdoors, and I didn't realise that I had the anxiety before, but that uh, knowing, once my, you know, you say that, uh, well, actually, you and Gemma both said this afternoon, that sensation of knowing that you're heading south, or just that feeling that comes over you of like, oh, I can find the direction, quiets a part of my brain, even if I'm not, you know, desperately hungry, just, it just is a nice little thing that sits in the back of my brain and goes, you're okay, you, you know, you can take this risk because you know how to find your way out of 
here or you know I don't have to be I, do you know what I mean there's something I do, totally and I, I think we all, we all have it at the most sort of facetious end of the spectrum I heard somebody once describe it as Starbucks anxiety when you, you you're not sure <laughs> there's franchise coffee outlet <laughs> It's, it that's is in that in Devon. That's a big. That's a big anxiety where we live. Is <laughs> <laughs> um, it? Did you? Um, um, were there any other sort of uh, particular sort of questions, or are there any other sort of areas you'd, you you'd like to uh, roam into? I think, I think do you know what? I think we could take talk, a lot of your time. We could definitely chat all <laughs> afternoon. But we are we known for rambling. We won't take up any more of your time. Is there anywhere you'd like to, if anybody's listening who it lives under a rock and hasn't heard of you, um, where's the best place that they can find out who you are and what you're doing and all the things like that? Oh, that's very kind. Um, I have a website, naturalnavigator.com, and it's a, hopefully a, a fun place to explore. And what I've done is allow people to explore the subject through the, 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 the sort of way in that feels most natural to them. So it might be the stars, it might be the sun, it might be plants, it might be animals, um, it might be the weather. So you, you can go in and there are lots and lots of examples to have a, have a look in there. There's, there's information about the, the books. And as you kindly sort of mentioned, I do have this this newsletter email, which I, I try to sort of, um, yeah, I, I sort of try and have a bit of fun with a few, few challenges and, um, yeah. And, and all the, all the usual online places for, for the books as well. So thank, thank you very much. No, oh, thank you so much for talking to you. It's been fascinating and have a great rest of the day. Okay. Cheers. Thanks. Thank so Happy navigating. Thank you. Bye. You can visit Children of the Forest in person and get incredible face-to-face -face training on a range of different topics, whether you're a full-time forest school teacher, a classroom teacher, or senior management. Visit childrenoftheforest.com for details and to book on to all the upcoming training.